0: All right, the ushers are coming along with the uh, note sheets and they have some Bibles. So if you need a Bible today, make sure you raise your hand and they'll bring one to your seat. If you've got your Bible, we are going to be bouncing around quite a bit this morning as uh, this morning's uh, sermon is a bit of a topical sermon. But if you crack your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1, chapter 1 and 2 of Matthew will be kind of our root text for this morning um, where we're going to be spending most of our time. Hope that you all enjoyed uh, the activities of yesterday and spent some great time with family and friends and enjoyed some good food and fellowship. And, and I pray that today as we come into the house of the Lord, we come uh, ready to offer the, the gift that God desires, the gift that's pleasing to Him, which is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. As we come before Him, uh, let us come expectantly, knowing that the Lord God desires to grow us as, as, as His disciples and to help us to increase in wisdom and stature, uh, both with God and men. So uh, let's let's keep that in mind as we dive into the Word together and think about the Scripture today, and let it nourish us. This is, of course, the time of the year uh, when all the networks and streaming services dust off the old digital copies of the Christmas-themed movies and TV shows, which have really woven themselves into the fabric of Western culture over the last century or so. And of course, each of uh, each year. They come out with something new, one or two more films are added to the mix, but they rarely stray very far from that basic Hollywood formula that has proved so profitable over the years. There's almost a universal theme to Christmas movies. Christmas is in danger, and someone needs to save Christmas. That's how it always goes. We may see it at a personal level. Um, someone just can't get into the spirit of Christmas. They're kind of a Grinch or a Scrooge, and so you have a Christmas carol, you have How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and, and it takes the community to kind of wake that up in them and to bring them back to that spirit of Christmas. Or maybe they're isolated from the people that they love. Christmas is in peril because they can't be with their family, and so somehow, someway, they've got to get back to those people they love. So you've got like Home Alone, or Home Alone 2, or Home Alone 3. I think there's like six of them now, right? Almost every year, a new Home Alone. Uh, Will Christmas accomplish what the people who are hoping Christmas will accomplish want to accomplish through Christmas? Will Ralphie get his Red Ryder BB gun, right? This is a a monumental crisis at Christmas. Will the beautiful but quirky young actress finally find romance at Christmas? Or will she spend another Christmas alone? So you might see this on a personal level. Christmas is in peril. Who's going to save Christmas? So you might find it more on a bigger scale. Maybe Santa is sick. Or the reindeer don't work this year. Or a town's yearly Christmas celebration is in jeopardy because of budget cuts. People just don't seem to believe in the magic of the holiday anymore. What are we going to do to redeem the holiday? And there's a great irony here. I don't know if you've noticed this. But every Christmas movie these days seems to make man the hero of Christmas. In some way, shape, or form, we have to save Christmas by believing in it. And so in Elf, everyone's got to sing songs of Christmas cheer to bring back that spirit and that belief. Or Polar Express, finally by the end of the movie, this young boy who's, who's on the edge, he's doubting, he finally is able to hear the ring of that Christmas bell. Or Miracle on 34th Street, there's so many examples of people finally by the end of the movie uh, re- believing again and their, their faith somehow redeems Christmas. And that's where the great irony lies. Leave it to the heart of man to take the story of God saving man and turn it into a story of man saving a novel holiday. Christmas truly is a miraculously historical event. The incarnation of God is complex and mind-boggling. To think that the God of the universe took on flesh to dwell with his created beings is is amazing. The virgin conception is unprecedented. It's beyond the scope of scientific explanation. The fulfillment of prophecy, some hundreds and hundreds of years old, down to the minutest detail, hundreds of years in the waiting, is nothing short of miraculous. And we must not overlook that the very purpose of the incarnation is the gracious redemption of sinners who were destined for the wrath of God. That is some real peril there. That is much more significant than a town possibly not being able to afford its winter celebration. Christmas is a true miracle. But the miracle of Christmas is God's work. It's not our work. It is a gift of grace poured out upon us. It is not some reward that we have earned for our faithfulness or good spirit. And so today we're going to look at the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus. And we're going to trace the preserving and powerful hand of God that made it possible. Despite the presence of very real threats that we read about through the course of biblical history. But before we get into the word, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word today. Father, God, we thank you for Christmas. It is is a wonderful time of year. And uh, God, we often hear believers say that we need to keep our eyes on the true reason for the season, Lord. But even that statement misses the point that Jesus and the work that he did is not a seasonal reality. Lord, every moment of our lives needs to be bathed in the, the amazing fact that you saved us through Christ. And that couldn't happen without you bringing Christ to this earth to live as a man, to be that new and better Adam. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to recognize the magnitude and the beauty of what Christ did. And Father, humble our hearts so that we don't feel this compulsion to write ourselves in as the hero of the day, Lord. Help us instead to just bask in the the wonder and the beauty of what Christ has done on our behalf. May your word... Play out these truths, prevent me from teaching mere ideas of men today, Lord God. Help us to remember the great beauty of what you have revealed to us, just as you revealed it to those shepherds so many years ago, Lord God. May it impact us, may it draw us closer to you, and may it give us a heart to share and proclaim to the world that these things are true. We thank you, Father, for your grace, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There would be no Christianity without the birth of Christ. But the historical birth of Jesus did not come without opposition. It did not come without challenge. So what threats had to be overcome for the incarnation of Jesus to become a reality? When we open God's Word, we see that from the very beginning, the foreshadowing of Jesus' birth was communicated to God's creation. Genesis speaks of man being created in the image of God on the sixth day of creation. We do not know exactly how long it took for man to unravel that relationship of peace. But for a time, he dwelt in the garden. He walked with God in the coolness of the morning. Adam and Eve together were united with the Lord God. But by chapter 3 of Genesis, the tragic introduction of sin has driven a wedge between man and his maker. Having broken the law of God, Adam and Eve, the first humans, are cast away from the presence of God. And every human being since has suffered the consequence of their original sins. But before the Garden of Eden is rendered off-limits to Adam and Eve, God calls them to himself, along with the Spirit who tempted them. And he does two things here in Genesis chapter 3. God issues curses that come from the violation of the covenant that he had made with them. We're going to speak a little bit more about the covenants in a minute, Uh, so I won't go into too much detail right now. But, but covenants had been broken. and So God issues the proper sanctions against these people who have violated the terms of that covenant. God is still in control. Though man and woman have sinned, they have not sinned without consequence. And God does what a good king does. He issues consequence for their sin. And the second thing he does is he points forward, points forward to a solution that has already been ordained, which will effectively cancel out the curses that man has brought upon himself. And so we read in Genesis 3.15, the word of God says, and this is, this is the Lord God speaking explicitly to the serpent, Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, God reveals That From the offspring of Eve, from one of her descendants will come an individual who will also be at odds with this deceiver who enticed Adam and Eve. But this particular offspring will do what Adam and Eve failed to do. He's going to reject Satan's temptation. He's going to uphold the law of God. And by his righteousness, the wicked schemes of the serpent will be overcome. They'll be dashed away. He will be known as Messiah, this seed of Eve. And he will not only save, but he will lead his people to be what they are designed by God to be. So God's not going to let this intruder ruin God's plan. At the right time, he will reverse the curse of sin. He will secure a people who will walk with him, not temporarily, but eternally. This is the thesis statement of God's plan of redemption. But God's plan needed to be further revealed to us in greater detail. And so it is through a a progressive series of covenants that uh, that God makes with the world and with his particular people, Israel, over the ages, that we learn more about the details of what this Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. One of those first covenants we see after this initial incident in the garden is the Noahic covenant. And so after... Uh, after the, uh, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, are cast out of the garden, humanity continues on. They, they have offspring and the human race grows until a time when great wickedness spread throughout the earth and a man named Noah hears from the Lord God. Uh, Noah hears that judgment is coming. God will not endure the sinfulness of man forever. But the ark into which Noah and his family took refuge pointed forward to the fact that God would provide a sanctuary into which his people could hide to escape that judgment. That sanctuary, of course, was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. He is our sanctuary. So the Noahic Covenant reminds us that that sin and wickedness does not go unpunished, but that God does have a plan to redeem his particular people out of that punishment. The Abrahamic Covenant comes next, and through this covenant, God establishes a special people for himself through which he intends to display his glory to the world. Through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, all the nations of the world would be blessed by God. By the way, salvation is not just for our good. It is good for us, but it is also ultimately for God's glory. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is about to reveal a great deal about the new covenant to come in chapter 36 one which will be established by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in verse 22. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you came. Is salvation a blessing for us? Absolutely. It is a blessing for those who trust in Christ. But it is also glory to the Lord that he would be so kind as to save a wretched, rebellious people like us for himself. And so the Abrahamic covenant establishes that God will use Abraham and his offspring to bring about the salvation to the world. Then the Mosaic covenant follows. And through this covenant, God would establish an order for his people that would be based on his nature and his character. This necessitated a law, a code by which Israel would conduct itself. And as they conformed to the law of God, his attributes would shine among them as their lives were a contrast to the lives of those who gave no regard to God and lived as though God was not real or as if other false gods that they had made up out of their own minds and hearts were the true gods. But alas, this law that Moses brings to God's people was not intended to save the people. In fact, it only emphasized their need for God to intervene and to save in a way that man could never save himself. Following the Mosaic Covenant, we get this wonderful Davidic Covenant. And through this covenant, God promises a lasting kingdom. Sin had brought chaos and disorder. And it brought death where life was intended to flourish. And in order to stop the spread of death, order had to be reestablished. God needed to express His dominion again over that which He made. And he intended to do that through a series of kings, which would make it very clear to Israel and to the people around that only the leadership of God himself would be enough to press back the final enemy. Every king in the history of Israel fell short of what God could do for them as king. And so frustration after frustration uh, unfolds, and each one of these kingly rules marks the rule of kings that are responsible for leading Israel and Judah. It is in the midst of this frustration that God began to unveil his solution in more detail. One final king of the lineage of David would establish the proper rule of God's people. And so in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 through 7, this familiar Christmas prophecy comes to us. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's in the history of covenantal promises that we encounter the first of three general challenges that had to be faced in order for Jesus to take on flesh and to fulfill the promises of God. The first challenge we see here this morning is that the Messiah had to descend from King David. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1 if you're not there already. Matthew's Gospel begins by addressing this important requirement. He introduces his historical account by tying the birth of Jesus to the family bloodline of David and down on through Abraham. He says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you see right there, he's anchoring this Christ about which he's about to speak to the promises of a Davidic heir to take the throne and establish the kingdom. And that this Davidic covenant is tied to the Abrahamic covenant. We won't read the whole genealogy this morning, but I want to point out a few interesting details that might have been seen as a problem to some who expected the Messiah. The general format of this genealogy traces the fatherly line, which is very typical of Hebrew histories and genealogies, but there are a couple of key examples of women being included in this line. And these inclusions may have raised some eyebrows amongst the Hebrew people. So let's think about them for a moment. Matthew chapter 1, verses 5-6. through 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So in this genealogy, which is intended to historically root Christ in these covenantal promises that were so important to the Hebrew people, we see two women mentioned here who are not by blood Israelite women. Rahab was a prostitute, in fact. She was of the people of Jericho, a Canaanite, before the Israelites came in and took over the land of Canaan. Ruth was a Moabitess. She had married an Israelite who had been sojourning out of their land and and became connected to Israel through her husband. So could Jesus be the covenant Messiah if his bloodline wasn't even purely Jewish? Now honestly, this first challenge is more of a perceived problem than a real one. Because God's favor was never exclusively on ethnic Israel. The roots of the nation of Israel included more than Abraham's son. If you think back to the establishment of God's promise with Abraham, God initiates this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And for many chapters, there is no son given to him. And yet God immediately begins to bless Abraham, who responded to God in faith and left the land that he was familiar with to pursue God's plan for his life. Before even having a child with Sarah, God grows Abraham's sphere of influence to the point where his followers are so many that he can't even dwell next door to his, his uh, cousin or his nephew Lot because he's, he's, his assets are so many. There's such a great multitude. In fact, his people begin to have to engage in, in warring factions against other people groups because there are so many people following after Abraham and connecting themselves to, to his leadership. This earliest multitude of Abraham's people were not his blood descendants, but were important to the formation of the nation of Israel. Now, no doubt, there were bloodline implications early on, and God did establish exclusive rights of land inheritance through the bloodline of Isaac and Abraham and Sarah's Sarah's biological son. But we have consistent provisions for those who are outside of ethnic Israel to join into the promises of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43. It says likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, meaning the temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So we see here that there was always provision for the foreigner to come in and to worship this great and mighty God. The presence of such names as Ruth and Rahab in the genealogical line of Jesus are indicative of God's intent, not just to save a particular bloodline, but to make those who do not belong belong to God. These names are listed without shame as a reminder to us, that God's people are not defined by genetic birthright, but by a heart that trusts in God and submits to His rule. So, praise God for Rahab's name in this genealogy. Praise God for the for His willingness to invite those who are outside of the covenant into the covenant. We see this repeated in many ways, reinforced in the, the teachings of Peter in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter two, verses 9 through ten. Peter is addressing a mixed multitude of believers and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just as Ruth came alongside Boaz and, and as kinsman redeemer he brought hope out of a situation of hopelessness so too to people like us most of whom are not ethnically Israelites have been invited into this covenant that God struck with Abraham so many years ago we've been grafted into the root system of Christ's blessing to Abraham and his people so it is not the pure blood of Jesus' ancestors that makes Jesus' birth special there is another potential problem though with the genealogy of Christ how could the Christ be born of a woman born under the law, but not inherit the guilt of sin like every other human being who was born to Eve had inherited. it. Every man and woman in this genealogy that we read are sinners. Every one of them fell short of the glory of God and was in desperate need of a redeemer like Christ. This challenge is met again, not by our efforts, but by the will and the power of God. God determines that he's going to bring this covenant Messiah in a very special way. Mary, this young Hebrew woman, conceives a child, but she does not do it in the conventional manner. If you were here on Christmas Eve, Pastor Paul preached about how the birth of Jesus was at the same time very conventional. Jesus was born into a Jewish household, uh, that that he was received well into the family, but at the same time it was unconventional. And the unconventional aspect, the extraordinary aspect of Jesus' birth, rests in the fact that he was born to a virgin woman. The virgin birth is necessarily miraculous. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12-14, through 14, the Apostle Paul writes about how we inherit the sin that so plagues us. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Those last words should ring true to us. Adam was a type of the one to come. Who's Paul talking about there? He's talking about Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of the antitype. Adam being the first man, Jesus being the true Adam. You see, Adam sinned in the garden, but when he sinned, we as his offspring all sinned with him. As men and women who descend from Adam, we have been born into the guilt of his decision to break God's law. He fulfilled the the place of what is called a, a federal head. In other words, in a legal sense, his actions reflected on all who would come after him. He was our legal representation in the initial covenant that God had made with man in the garden. And that first covenant in the garden was quite simple. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll give you all that you need. In fact, look, I've already provided it for you. Trust that what I've given to you is enough. Tend to the blessing and enjoy your nearness to me. But here's the stipulation. Do not eat of this one tree, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, the covenant that I make with you today will be broken and you will die. The result of your sin will be death. A very simple covenant. And yet we all know how that turned out. Adam and Eve both ate of the tree and since then all of mankind has been under the representation of Adam, has been cursed. And with the curse comes a desperate need for salvation. But note, According to Romans 5, which we read just a moment ago, sin came into the world not by two people, but by one man. Adam and Eve both sinned, but sin came into the world by the man Adam. There was leadership in the garden. Adam was responsible for guarding and leading Eve. She was his charge to take care of. And unfortunately, he failed to do that. 1 Timothy 2.14 alludes to this. Because it tells us that even, uh, that Eve was deceived into eating the forbidden fruit, but Adam was not deceived into eating the fruit. He ate of the fruit rebelliously, knowing full well that doing so was a violation of the covenant. And so Romans 5 indicates to us that it is by the way of Adam and not by way of Eve that the guilt of sin is passed down to all of Adam's descendants. We inherit our sinful guilt from our fathers. Now, by these details, we may begin to see the extraordinary lengths that God went to to bring Christ into the world the way that he did. The virgin birth was so theologically significant. In Jesus, we have a man who was born of a woman in fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, which said that the seed of woman would bruise the head of the serpent. He had to have an authentic human nature, and indeed he did. But Jesus was not born to a human father. Adam was not Jesus' legal representative here on earth. In the virgin conception, God provides for us a new Adam, a new representative. And indeed, all who see the failure of the first federal head, Adam, recognize that they too are just as guilty of sinning against God as he is. And then with a repentant heart, those who put trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ, the new and the better Adam, effectively transfer from the covenant of Adam to, to that, uh, that leads to death and destruction and punishment and separation from God forever. They transfer from that covenant into the covenant of Jesus, which gives new life and washes us clean. So as my brother Ivan likes to say, we are all in one covenant or another. We're either in the covenant of Adam, which leads to death and destruction, or we're in the covenant of Jesus, which leads to life and, and redemption. So the genealogy of Jesus presented real challenges, but God sovereignly accounted for each of those challenges, keeping his promises to bring deliverance and dominion through the lineage of, D- of David, and yet producing a Savior who was truly man, and yet without the curse of sin upon him that every son of Adam had to contend with. So let us turn our attention to a second challenge now that is recorded in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus took of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph wants to be a godly man. He wants to walk as a good Hebrew man should walk. And so he desires to keep himself pure unto marriage. And that is why, though they were betrothed to be married together, it says that that they had not yet come together, meaning they had not yet consummated their marriage vows. And so when Joseph learns that his wife-to-be is indeed pregnant, he feels a moral compulsion to divorce Jesus. He feels morally compelled to divorce Jesus' mother. Now, the miraculous nature of Jesus' virgin conception produces a Messiah unstained by the sin nature that is inherited by every other human being. But it didn't come without its social challenges. This kind of conception was unprecedented in human history. But the idea of an engaged lady coming up up pregnant before she was officially wed was not unprecedented. That had happened before. It pointed to one of three very grievous conditions. Either the young lady had been violated against her will, perhaps she had been raped, and had become pregnant from that. Or secondly, maybe the young couple had failed to remain pure until the time of their wedding. Maybe they consummated things before the time was right for them to do that, which would have been sinful and unacceptable socially, but it did happen. Or there's a third option. It could point to the idea that the young lady had not been faithful to her betrothed and was pregnant by some other man that she had slept with. Each of these three options comes with its own consequences and fallout. But from the perspective of Joseph having deep knowledge of the situation, the most likely scenario was the third. It's the only one that he could conceive of. This Mary, whom he had committed himself to love and to support, must have slept with another man and violated his honor and, and the honor of God in doing so. So when Mary was found to be with child, from Joseph's point of view, the only explanation that fit the situation was that this young woman had committed adultery and had failed to abide by the law of God. Now we learn something about Joseph in these scriptures that are recorded for us here. We learn that he was a just man, that he cared about the law of God to such a great extent. His own desire to marry um, young Mary was not greater than his desire to be honest and forthright with his Lord God and to be pure before him. And so he was going to divorce this woman rather than shame the name of God and enter into a covenant relationship with somebody who was not obedient to him. We also learn here, though, that there was a compassionate heart in this man, Joseph. We learn that he was unwilling to put young Mary to shame. And he could have, couldn't he? He had the right, under Jewish law, to divorce her publicly in such a way that her sin was drawn out of the darkness and into the light to make her seem like a laughingstock to the people. The heartache that comes with being scorned in such a personal way could have very well caused a more self-centered man to react with anger and retribution to his betrothed. But we read that Joseph did not react that way. The man that would provide for the Savior and be an influential figure in his life was a a man of more careful, measured self-control. Though what he thought Mary had done no doubt grieved him, Joseph was inclined to put his own feelings to, to the side and to simply divorce her quietly. He would let the Lord deal with her sin and would simply annul the union without demanding her suffering. But if he were to follow through with that, we'd be in a very strange place because now the Savior of the world would belong to a woman and would have no earthly father to look after him. Who's going to solve this problem for us? Obviously, this was not in God's plan for Joseph to marry and to dissolve this betrothment with his wife. And it wasn't Joseph's realizing at the last minute that his love for Mary was so strong that he couldn't be without her. That wasn't what saved their their marriage. It wasn't the well-timed visit of some mentor who challenged Joseph to make the most of the situation and just to be gracious to Mary that solved the marriage problem. God didn't need the help of men to secure a faithful family for his only begotten son. What did he do? Just when Joseph and Mary's nuptials seemed to be unraveling, God himself intervened. He saves Christmas. Matthew 1, 20-23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... intervenes in a supernatural way. This is not a normal problem. Neither is the solution normal. It ends up being a supernatural solution. God shows Joseph that he is at work. He bids Joseph to cast his fear aside and to marry this wife. This would come with some requisite responsibilities to both Mary and her son. Joseph would have to provide for them. He would have to lead them. He would have to live with them according to the covenant. And we don't see Joseph overcoming his doubts and his fears on his own. We don't see the heroic intervention and wisdom of man. Instead, we see God appearing to his servant and telling him just enough to set his mind at ease and to give him a direction for his faith. And the whole story is not revealed to him. Neither are new promises given to Joseph. The birth of this child would represent the fulfillment of old promises, which no doubt made Joseph think about the situation in a whole new way. If this is God's promise playing out, Joseph did not need to fear. God is one who keeps his promises. And so in Matthew 1, 24 through 25, we read that when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's plan to enter into the marriage covenant with Mary was not extinguished, but it was delayed. See, Joseph was, not willing to wait, or Joseph was willing to wait to consummate his marriage to Mary so that God's plan had time to happen just as they had been revealed to Joseph in his dream. So by means of angelic intervention, God had averted the potential crisis of Jesus being born without an earthly father. But there were still more challenges to be addressed. The child this humble couple would welcome into the world would grow to be the king of kings and the lord of lords But not everyone was excited about the arrival of this prophesied ruler. In the region of Judah, there was a man who already held the title of king, and he had no intentions of letting some upstart Hebrew boy become a threat to his authority and his power. On Christmas Eve, Pastor Paul spent some time reflecting on the role that the wise men mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 and how it played a a significant part in the story of Jesus' prophesied arrival. These men were not Jewish wise men. Rather, they were philosophers from the East, who had studied widely. They, they had a broad discipline of, of reading prophecies and, and literature from other cultures. And they had heard mention of a Hebrew pro- prophecy concerning the restoration of a special kingly line. They had read ancient scriptures, which foretold of a unique star in the east that would suddenly appear and mark the arrival and the fulfillment of a special prophecy. These wise men, perhaps there were three, we have really no idea because the scripture's not clear on that, but they were so intrigued by the appearance of this astrological anomaly that they decided to investigate and to see if there was true merit to this ancient prediction. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Why does it say here that Herod was troubled? Well, that's somewhat obvious. If you know anything about the history of that time, Herod was well known as a despotic ruler. He was autocratic. He did things his way and he didn't put up with any challenge to his authority. So the idea that there was a young child prophesied to be born soon who might actually reestablish the autonomy of the Hebrews who were living amongst the Roman rule, that was a threat to him. It troubled him. He did not like the sound of that. Why did it trouble the people? It troubled the people of the region because those citizens knew what a tyrant they were under. And they did not like the idea of this Herod becoming enraged at a new challenge to his throne This could cause serious conflict. It could lead to all-out war. Now, at first, Herod was not upfront about his intentions. He tried to get the wise men to reveal their findings to him. He pretended as though he wanted to worship this young king himself and sent them upon their way. But when he saw that they weren't compliant, when they saw through his schemes and they went back home a different way, he tried to use a small-scale genocide to wipe out any potential threat. That's the lengths to which this crazy ruler would go to to make sure there was no potential threat to his throne. Matthew 2.16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now this represents a very serious challenge to God's plan. God intends to bring his son into the world to be a redeemer to us, Herod tries to intervene and have the Messiah killed before he could grow to manhood and threaten Herod's rule. This is the stuff movies are made of, really. But the Bible doesn't really translate well to Hollywood because Hollywood wants to tell stories about how we save ourselves. The Bible tells the truth. The Bible tells us that we cannot save ourselves. Man is not a worthy hero. You could put a fancy spandex suit and put a shield in his hand. He's still not a hero. He's a sinner. Jesus Christ is the only man worthy of saving souls like ours. So the conflicts necessary to build a good Hollywood tailor are too easily resolved when the God who is, the God whom man is trying to oppose knows all things, when he can do all things himself, well aware of Herod's threats, God sends an angelic intervention to unravel King Herod's plans. And so in Matthew chapter 2 verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God even uses the same means to protect the path of the wise men who had come to honor Jesus, instructing them to use a different route home and avoid the wrath of King Herod. And so again, God did not depend upon the work of the faithful to preserve the Messiah. He took action himself, instructing Joseph and Mary to flee the land and to find refuge in Egypt for a time. Verses 14-15 through of Matthew 2 says, And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This too was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son, which is a reference to uh, Exodus four twenty-two through 23. It's worth noticing here that this precautionary detour also serves to fulfill ancient prophecy concerning the Savior and the Messiah, that Jesus would indeed spend some time in Egypt and would be called out of Egypt when the time was right. So God who is sovereign over space and time was well aware of every threat that might from our earthly perspective endanger God's plan to come and dwell with men. Considering the omniscience of God, there is no schemes of man or of devils that he does not see coming. Considering the omnipotence of God is his great and un, 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 uh, unstoppable power, there is no power that can rise up and oppose him. No rival who can make him tremble or cause God to question his plan. Considering the omnipresence of God, there is no corner of the creation where God's sovereign eye does not rest, where rebellion and trouble can conjure up any kind of opposition to God that might truly threaten his will and his ways. Is Christmas in danger, friends? Is there even a single power on earth that can threaten to undo the important work that God did when he sent his son Jesus Christ to take on a human nature, to live a perfect life, And to offer that perfect life upon a cross in order to save a people for himself. No, brothers and sisters, there is not a power in heaven or on earth who stands between God and the accomplishment of his perfect will. And so we have every reason to rejoice with confidence this morning and every morning that the God we have gathered here to worship is accomplishing his objectives and is even using this very worship service to display the victory that is proclaimed in his holy word. Because God is victorious in all that He plans to accomplish, let us, knowing that God saves sinners through the preaching of His Word and through the testimony of His saints, let us, with joy and with gladness, continue to do exactly what He has empowered us to do. Let us boldly come before the throne of grace and ask with humble hearts that this God might even use us to accomplish these lofty things. Let us ask that through His birth, we might proclaim the grace and the, 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 the will of Jesus Christ, the will of salvation that he is using to redeem his people to himself. Let us pray that through us, the shocking sacrifice of his own life might not be forgotten, but might be remembered and proclaimed with awe and wonder, and that its transforming power might take effect as the work of the Holy Spirit awakens those who have up until now ignored the dangers of sin and their own need for a Savior. God is sovereign over Christmas. That doesn't mean that we do nothing and just sit back and watch. It means that we participate because we know that God's will is being done, that there is no power fashioned against him that can stand. What makes Christmas special is not paid time off of work. It's not all the decorations and the lights and the pageantry. What makes Christmas special is not you and I giving thoughtful little gifts to one another. It's not even the great efforts we make at this time of year to be with our loved ones and our families and to appreciate them. Christmas is special because it is a surprising means by which God has provided a worthy sacrifice for our sins. Apart from Christmas, there would be no man worthy to take the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Nothing can change that fact and nothing can diminish its power. Would you pray with me as we conclude? God, we thank you for your grace and ask that even as we sing this concluding song and as our minds and hearts remain fixed upon you when we leave this place, God, that you would help us to stand in awe and wonder, knowing, Lord God, that we have nothing to do with our own salvation. Father, that you are entirely responsible for this free gift that you have given to us, that through Jesus Christ, we might surprisingly receive mercy when true judgment is what we have earned. Father, we are grateful that by the work of Jesus Christ, we are no longer your enemies, so we have no reason to resist your will and your plan But Father, we also humbly confess that we still do at times, that we struggle to keep the law of God, that we are not perfect men and women, but we rejoice in the knowledge that every sin that we commit has already been punished on Christ. And so help us, Lord God, with humble hearts to to flee from sin, to put it to death, because Lord God, you are victorious over it and it has no place in our lives anymore. I pray, Lord God, that when uh, the culture around us tries to to redefine life, tries to encourage us that it is by our own will or our own power that we save ourselves or that we pull ourselves out of the mire of depression and failure, Lord God, that we would sit back and and just think about your word instead, that we would proclaim the truth that we cannot save ourselves. But Father, we are grateful that you have gone to great lengths to save us. God, this is all to your glory and to your honor. May the whole world hear of this and may you cause so many, Lord God, to bow the knee to you in reverent humility, knowing that they could not save themselves, but you indeed, Lord God, have saved. And so we thank you, Father, for the growth of your kingdom, for your ever-expanding church. We praise you, Lord, that your will is indeed being done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.